Amen. So if you could open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to those three Psalms that uh, Tommy read to us, 120, 121, and 122. And uh, I do a brief recapitulation of what I said a fortnight ago for those who weren't here or for those who were here and forgotten everything. So within the 150 psalms there are 15 psalms that make up a a small unit in that 150. 15 psalms from 120 to 134. Um, In the AV there's a little subscription that says songs of degrees. Modern translations say songs of ascent. Literally, it's songs of goings up, songs of goings up. I've called them songs for climbers. And these were songs that were sung by Old Testament Israel when God had called them to come into his presence at least three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The law commanded that the nation of Israel come to him in Jerusalem to worship him and to give thanks. Now, We, as 1 Peter tells us, and many other places in the New Testament, we are now the Israel of God. We are the holy nation. So these psalms we can apply to ourselves as we are on our pilgrimage, not to an earthly Jerusalem, but to the heavenly Jerusalem, which has come out in the songs that we've sung thus far. Um, We're heading to the city of God, the new Jerusalem. We're on a pilgrimage. So these psalms apply to us. Now, Alec Motier, one of the best Old Testament scholars England's produced, or had produced, he's died now, but he was the first to put me onto the fact that these psalms, these 15 psalms, are also in triplets, in groups of three. So each of the groups of three represent one facet of our journey from here to glory, to the new Jerusalem. And we're looking at the first triplet. Um, last week, or last, two weeks ago, we looked at what I call the now of, of, of the situation, living in this world. 121 shows us the climb, and 122, we arrive in Jerusalem. We've reached our destination. Now, when we looked at the now last time, we saw that this place, this world, is, is full of lying lips and deceitful tongues and hatred that's manifested particularly against God's people. Christians are the brunt of so much hatred and wrong talking in this world. But we're also called, it's told us in that psalm, to be peacemakers. So we're to leave the judgment to God and we're called to preach the gospel of peace. Now tonight we're looking at 121 and 122. So 121 gives us the climb. So if you turn to 121 to look at it, you can see it begins. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. Now, this isn't a poetic picture of nice rolling green hills and the psalmist looking up saying, look at these glorious green hills. For the psalmist, the hills represent the perils of the journey the difficulties he was going to experience. He's conscious that on his pilgrimage, the climb that lay between him, wherever he was, and Jerusalem is going to be full of rocky valleys. 
in which would be hiding robbers and other people to harass them and harm them. So it's a very real question he asks. From whence cometh my help? Where am I going to get my help from? Am I ever going to make it from here to the city of God as God has commanded me to do? And it's a very real question for us too on our pilgrimage, our journey. It's a taxing and a demanding one and we'll have enemies that are lying in wait for us. It's interesting that I found um, so often amongst Christians there's a certain naivety about what we're doing in this world. We're seeking to make our way to the next world, to the city of God. But on our way there, we are under attack from enemies who would love to destroy us, if possible, but certainly to hinder us and to harm us. You see, when we accept God's call to come into his presence, then we automatically become enemies with God's enemies. And Satan the father of lies, the one that causes all the hatred in this world, is just dying to harass us, injure us, and destroy us, if possible. He is seeking to ambush us as we travel. Watching, waiting, sometimes using subtleties and lies and discouragements, but sometimes full frontal attacks. Imagine you're travelling home one night, maybe from Joe's farm into Farmore, and there's a, there's a, it's a dark pathway, and you're walking along there, and all of a sudden, from behind the hedge comes this huge, slavering, rabid dog, and he hurtles towards you, and you're terrified, and you're frightened, you can smell his breath as he gets closer and closer, and he gets this close, and then he stops, because he's chained up. And that's exactly the way it is with the enemy of our souls. Satan has been chained. The Lord Jesus has put him in chains. So he can't destroy us. If we're blood-bought, redeemed people of God, Satan cannot destroy us. But what he can do is destroy our assurance, our joy and our peace. Because he can make us fearful. Either a full frontal attack like that, and he's worse than a huge slavering, rabid dog can destroy all the things. But what he's seeking to do is to hinder us, to get us to move off the pathway. We're on this pathway to glory. We've been commanded by God to get there and he's anxious to get off that path. So what we need to do is to not be naive and to be aware that we have an enemy and he's seeking to hinder us and to harm us and if possible, to destroy us. So be aware and not naive and take heed of the psalmist in verse 2. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. So we look to him who made not only the hills he's travelling through, but every hill upon this planet, everything on this planet, even Satan he has made. Satan is his pet dog in a sense. We look to him who made everything. So we look to him, we depend on him, he has everything we need for our climb. So our pilgrimage is largely 
learning to live in prayerful dependence upon the Lord our God. He's called us to come into his presence. We are to depend on him daily for the strength and protection for the journey. We must pray for protection and it's exactly what our Lord taught us to do, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's Prayer, so-called, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, don't let us be led astray. Don't let us be tempted off the pathway. We're on this pathway. We're heading for glory. Lord, save us from distractions. Save us from the, the subtle lies and deceits of Satan that would draw us off the path. And save us from being so frightened of the evil one that we step off the path, if only for a short time, just for a bit, just to catch our breath before we get back on again. And we need to pray. That the Lord's Prayer is such a good prayer to pray daily. And we start with the worship of God, don't we? We, ask, we? we show him that we depend on him for everything, day by day. And we ask for his protection in this world. And the rest of this psalm elaborates really on this theme of the Lord's keeping of us. Verses 3 to 4. He's the God who protects us. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. That is, he will not let your foot slip. And there's an interesting movement um, in verses 3 and 4 from the singular to the collective. He that keepeth Israel, in verse 4. And the introduction of Israel there just reminds us how sensual pilgrimage to our calling. Um, that's what we're doing here on earth. We're not just here to wander around randomly. We're on pilgrimage. And the mention of Israel here just reminds us of that. Why did God redeem Israel from Egypt? Well, to bring them in relationship with himself. Ultimately, to bring them into the promised land. And it's just the same with us New Testament as well. Why did God redeem you out of the world? In order to bring you into his presence. Ultimately, to bring you to heaven. And he's not going to lose you on the way. Jesus died and rose again to secure the end. It is finished. We were reminded of this morning. That glorious thought. Jesus died and rose again to ensure that we will get there. And if he's secured the end, then surely we can trust him to secure the means to the end. To trust him that he will get us through this difficult world to where he wants us to be, with him in glory. And then in verses 5 to 8, he's the God who not only commands us to come into his presence and not only watches over us, but he accompanies us. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. In other words, he couldn't be nearer. If you're in his shade, he couldn't be any nearer. And the right hand, usually in scripture, indicates constant availability. There's never a situation where you need God and he's too busy. He's always there. And in verse 6, we read, The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. This is telling us that the God who accompanies us stands between us and all the threats to our well-being whilst we're on this journey. The sun and moon 
uh, speak of the totality of time, but they also speak of dangers seen and unseen, dangers of the dark and dangers of the day. And then verses 7 and 8 uh, really summarise the most comprehensive protection imaginable. However, notice that it says, he will preserve you from all evil. Not from all dangers, not from all problems, not from all discomforts, not from all bad situations. He will protect you from all evil. He will preserve, as it says at the end of verse 7, your soul, the inner you, if you like, the real you. He's promised to preserve your soul. And he preserves us. He's promised it, he guarantees it, he will do it. Now, he may do it in a way that we fail to understand with our limited, finite understanding and perspective, but he will guard us and he will keep us all the way to glory, even for evermore. So that's the journey. That's the promises we have as we embark on this journey. From the world that we left behind last time, we're on the journey. And these are the promises we have. Now, Psalm 122, which is the destination... Uh, gives us a marvellous, wonderful, motivating picture of where we're heading for. The reality of the Jerusalem that awaits us. The goal of our faith. This is a future reality to which we're climbing. And this is what keeps us climbing. And we will not dis be disappointed when we get there. I mentioned last time there's the fellowship of verses 1 and 2. Um, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet together. We, we travel together. We need one another. We're on pilgrimage, but we need one another. We need encouragement. We need support. And our destination now is a city. No longer are we dwelling in a tent in Kedar, as we were back in Psalm 120. It says Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. That is, it's, it's bound firmly together. It's a city of unity. Where, verse 4, God's people live under the authority of God's word, under the testimony of Israel, that is the statutes of Israel, the word of God. It's a city, verse 5, where great David's greater son reigns, where right judgments are made, a city where everything is put right, where there is joy, peace, security, love, fellowship, all the things that people are looking for on earth and often searching in all the wrong places. They're only to be found in the Lord and ultimately only to be found in their entirety, in their complete substance when we get to glory. And that's where we really belong if we're God's people. That's why we saw last time in 120, the psalmist said, woe to me that I dwell in such a place. Woe to me that I live in such a world. Because... We know, if we're Christians, we don't belong here. We feel uncomfortable here. We're longing to be home. And that's where we're going. But we need to keep our eye on that far horizon that I've mentioned before. That's where we're heading, the far horizon. However, neither is it all entirely in the future. If you could turn to Hebrews chapter 12, I've only got one cross-reference. That's Hebrews chapter 12 
Now, I'm sure if you've been in church more than twice in your life, you'll know that Hebrews was written um, to Christians who were being tempted to get off the pathway. Through fear of the Jews, they were being tempted to go back to Judaism to get off that road to glory. So, all of Hebrews, really, is to encourage you not to do that. Now, when you get to chapter 12, um, I'm heading up to verse 18. What he's doing here, he's reminding them of when the Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai at the beginning. So, chapter 12, verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. This is the old covenant. I exceedingly fear and quake. Now everybody says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, as, as I read that, did you notice the tense of the verb in verse 22? See, he doesn't say to these Christians that attempted to go back to Judaism, don't go back because one day you will reach Jerusalem, one day you will reach glory. He says, no, you have come. You have come, he says to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've already come. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying that at least in part, every representative of that heavenly Jerusalem down on earth, that is the church, is like the city of God. So we find a foretaste now of glory in the church. That's what the church is designed to be, to give us a taste of glory, so much so that we thirst for more. That's what the church is for. A place where we enjoy a taste of heaven. So, verse 4, church is a place where we gather to give thanks to our God. And I think that's helpful to remind us why we gather, ultimately. We don't gather, well, we gather and we sing songs, but we sing songs to give thanks to God, that express our love to him, our devotion to him. We hear sermons, but we don't hear sermons just so we get more information, but that we find out how much the Lord loves us, how much he cares for us. Gives us a taste of heaven, and we realize how much we have to thank him for, how much we worship him for his goodness, that he should choose us to be part of his church. And it's the place where right judgment is made, that is made according to his word, according to his degree. So, every church 
is designed to be in shadow at least a picture of the new Jerusalem. However, these outposts, these shadows, sadly are not always what they ought to be. The church is not always compactly bound together. Now the foundation is perfect. We heard that from Lawrence on Wednesday. The foundation is perfect. We'll build upon the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. But the building's a bit different, isn't it? Why? Well, because of the poor quality of the materials that the Lord is using. You see, building, anybody that's done any building knows that if you're building something, it's so much easier. If the stones or the bricks are smooth, no sticking out. And in reality, as the Lord builds his church, he's dealing with bricks that are a bit irregular. He's dealing with bricks that have bits sticking out and chips in them and they're damaged. It's bad basic materials and it's hard to fit them together perfectly. And we're often like that because not always, but often because of the remnant of the fallen nature that still adheres to us, still sticks to us, still gives us rough edges. Even as redeemed people, the Lord doesn't clean us up completely at first point of salvation. Now we know that every person who is born into this world is born with original sin. We know that because it's self-evident that somebody comes into the world, the first thing they do is cry. They're demanding. Now, I know it's only a Christmas carol, but I think it's pretty good theology, where it says, And little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Because he was the only person born into this world without original sin. He didn't need to cry. See, the problem is that when we're born into this world, we all think that we're the most important in the world and that the world revolves around us. You can hear a little baby. I don't care how tired you are, I want your attention now. I don't care how weary you are, I want feeding now. I want entertaining now. I want this. I want that. They think they're the most important person in the world. Now as we grow with parental discipline and and society pressures, some of this wears off. But by and large, as unregenerate people, we still think we're the most important person in the world. We might conceal it, but that's deep down what people think. The problem is that even when we are regenerated, as I say, remnants of that old self remain. They adhere to us. Even though the Lord gives us a new heart, new perspectives on everything, that still remains and there's still an element of self-centeredness in many Christians. And so we think, we don't say that we still think we're the most important person in church, but we might think that, or we might think my opinion is the most important opinion in church, so we know best how the church should be run. We know best whether we should sing psalms or hymns or just choruses or whatever 
So many things within the church. Which hymn book we should use? I've been through all these. People get disagreements about. Because we still think that our opinion is the most important. The trouble is, our brothers and sisters all feel the same. So that makes it tricky, doesn't it? And therefore, within churches, there is not always the, the joy, the peace, the security, the fellowship, the love that awaits us in heavenly Jerusalem, as there ought to be in the local church. Now, as the Lord builds his church, he does knock off these rough edges. He does refine us, he does shape us, he will sanctify us, in other words. But we're not to be idle recipients. We don't just sit back and wait for God to do that. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're told to participate in this work the Lord is doing. Now in building, mortar is used to bind the bricks together. And mortar can also cover up lots of irregularities, lots of chips, lots of bad bits as you're building a wall or a house. And I want to suggest three elements uh, that would make God's house more compact together, more bonded together. And the first is humility. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, uh, in verse 3, chapter 2 and verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Or, I'm going to paraphrase it, don't be selfish or argumentative or proud. Rather be humble and seek the welfare of others before your own welfare. So humility. And the second one is love. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. And what he means by that, he doesn't mean big sins, what, he, what he's talking about is that because we love one another, we're not constantly picking people up, we're not constantly getting annoyed by something somebody says or something somebody does. We overlook the little irritations, the little foibles of people, knowing that we're far from perfect ourselves. So we're not to take offence too easily. It's so easy in a church to, oh, so-and-so didn't speak to me today, I feel so snubbed and so offended. Well, get over yourself. You know, you don't know what that person is going through. So let's learn to look over. Let's, with love, look upon our brethren and give them the benefit of the doubt. So humility and love, and then thirdly, prayer, which is what the psalmist tells us to do in verse 6. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, I want us to see first what that doesn't mean. Um, because to me, this is a, a, a much misused verse. Anybody that knows me, my wife, but anybody that I spent time with speaking about scriptures, know there are certain verses in the scriptures that are so misused so often, they, become, go, they, they go down in folklore as being true. And this is one of them. This text has been taken, particularly by our American cousins across the pond. Pray for physical Israel in modern day, like pray for physical Jerusalem in modern day Israel 
And often, along with that, pray against Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, or whichever Arab country at the time is in conflict with Israel. And it wouldn't be too far to say that certainly for the last 60, 70 years, US foreign policy has been predicated upon the fact that Israel are always the good guys and the Arabs are always the bad guys. And it hasn't got us very far at all, has it? That is not what the text means. If you disagree, we can talk about it tomorrow. What it does mean, and I think is obvious from where we're going thus far in the psalm, what it means is pray for the peace of the church. Pray for the outposts of this heavenly Jerusalem now. Pray for the peace of the church. And the text is even more specific. Now some Bibles do it and some don't, but from the end of 6b, to the, from 6b to the end of 7, there should be speech marks to indicate exactly what the psalmist is telling us to pray. Now as I say, some Bibles put them in and some don't. So what he's saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And what he says to pray, they shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls and prosperity within thy palaces. And the Hebrew word there translated prosper means prosper in being in well-being, in feeling secure. So we are to pray that all those who love the church and all the church represents feel safe and secure within the walls of the church. Safe from all those things that we saw in Psalm 120, the lying lips and the deceitful tongues and the hatred. Church should be a place where God's people find peace, love, care, encouragement, support, a place where brothers and sisters have all got one vision, one aim, to help one another on the way to glory, on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem, encouraging one another as we travel together along this pathway to meet the Lord. There should never be gossip, cliques, criticism, discouragement, backbiting or any other hindrances to our pilgrimage. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But of course, even as we pray for such things, we can be self-centred, thinking mainly of ourselves. I want to be loved and cared for. I don't want to be discouraged. Which is probably why verse 8 goes on to say, for my brethren and companion's sakes, I will now say peace within you. It's for the sake of others that we pray this prayer. So for example, I pray for James that he will feel secure and loved within the church. James prays for me that I will feel secure and loved within the church. And I use James because we do praise for each other in that way. That's what the verse, that's what the text is telling us. Because ultimately, Ultimately, verse 9, because the house of the Lord our God I will seek thy good. At the end of the day, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem because this is not our house. This is God's house. 
who are we to not pray for God's house? We pray for this because God's honour is at stake. A Christ-centred, Bible-believing, loving fellowship is such a beacon of light to a watching world. And the world does watch us constantly, looking for slip-ups, looking for things they can complain about, that can make the news. But a Christ-centred, Bible-believing, loving fellowship is such a witness, such a light. People can say, my, how those people love each other as they did the early church. And a dysfunctional church where those things are not found is a travesty of all Christ died for. So brethren, let's be humble, let's be loving, and let's pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's pray for our church. And let's do that now. I'm going to pray. Father God, as we, as we read these psalms, as we see the experiences of your people of old, and as we now know that all these things were written for our encouragement, our edification, Lord, we take them for ourselves and Lord, we want to be those people who, in this little outpost of heaven on earth, and in every other church that we know, Lord, that it would be truly a place where there is fellowship, where Christ is at the centre, where we seek to encourage one another all the time on our pilgrimage. So, Father, help us. Lord, we're all conscious that we're so self-centred much of the time, Lord. Father, deal with these remnants within us, we pray, that we can be other-centred. We can look out and see, how is my brother and sister in need? How can I help him or her to keep on that pathway, not to be sidetracked, not to stumble, not to be frightened by the attacks of the enemy? Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.